Well, you and I have been working our way through the book of Daniel. We find ourselves in Daniel chapter 11, and then next week, Daniel chapter 12. Now, Daniel chapter 10 was the introduction to chapters 11 and 12. Tonight, we're going to go to the 35th verse in Daniel chapter 11. Now, as a parent, and if you're a parent, you know this, that you love to bless your children and you love to be able to give your, your kids some of the things that they want. And, uh, you know, sometimes when you sit them down, you know that they have to eat some healthy things. If they just eat the stuff that they want, then you know that you're going to have some very unhealthy children, which is why you as the parent, you're the one who has to set what the diet is in the house because if you don't set it and you let your kids set the diet, they're going to eat Oreo cookies and they're going to eat, they're going to, that's probably some of you what you're feeding your kids. I don't know, but, but, they will eat the junk food because it makes them feel good now. But here's the thing. It's going to long-term raise some very malnourished children. Wouldn't you agree that that would be true? When the same way as the pastor of this church, it's fun to talk about the things that are like the ice cream sundae. But there are the times when we have to feed the broccoli. Now, never the Brussels sprouts. There's no reason in the world <laughs> to ever eat Brussels sprouts. But sometimes broccoli, if you smother it with enough cheese, it is edible. And in our house, we're kind of going through that right now because Cheryl, you know, I'm in in our house. It's like she is law and I am grace, which is amazing because our kids are afraid of me, but not her. So it, it, and she has decided that, that one of our children, Noah, is no longer drinking a bottle. Have you ever been through that battle? Just, he's like a new sheriff in town. He's not, and this kid, it just, it has the, emotional fortitude. He just, it's been days. He's turning to dust. I'm afraid he's going to blow away. But sometimes you have to make those hard decisions for your children because it's for their betterment. It's for their growth. And tonight is one of those chapters as we go through. It's kind of like the broccoli. I find it incredibly fascinating, but you might say, well, you know, it's not as tasty as some of the other times. And, and some of you might say, this is very tasty. Now, it's also interesting that is, if you've been through the book of Daniel, you've been working your way with us through the book of Daniel, you've heard me say that you and I are believers because of one reason and one reason only, and it is the whole concept of predictive prophecy. That is that God said some things were going to take place before they took place, and they took place. That you and I, I'm going to say that again because I lost a bunch of you, that you and I are believers because of one thing, and it's called predictive prophecy. That is, God laid out in His Word before events took place so that when they took place, you and I could look back and say, it happened just as you said. No other belief system in the world is based upon predictive prophecy. The Muslim religion, the Buddhist religion, none other religion, no other religion, no other faith can say, here's what's going to happen because our God says it's going to happen, and you can look at it and say, what really happened? There's not one. And God wanted to do it in such a way that you and I would look at what has taken place and we would say, it is absolutely true. It took place just as the Bible said. And so last time, we looked at the chapter 10 and then tonight chapter 11, and chapter 11 is going to deal with several hundred years of Jewish history that you can turn to any history book and you can corroborate exactly what the Bible says. As a matter of fact, there are 135 statements that you and I are going to go through tonight. I'm not going to elaborate on each and every one, but I am going to highlight some things. But you can go back through history and you can corroborate each one of these statements in their order just as the Bible said it to be. Now, the reason for that is that in chapter 11, he gives us some history so that you and I can look back and say it's absolutely the way that God said it would be. He gives us a few hundred years of history, but then he points to another time, the end time, and we'll look at that next week. It's a complete vision that Daniel has, and he will say, I'm giving you this. You can look back and say, it absolutely happened the way that I said it would be. So that whenever I tell you chapter 11, part B, and chapter 12 next week, you can look at that and say, because this happened, and and it really did, as we look at what's going to happen, we can rest assured that it's absolutely going to happen just like what has happened happened the way that God said it would be. Does that make sense? Okay. Well, once again, this is going to be somewhat of a cursory study. And again, last week, 
was the introduction to the vision, Daniel chapter 11, verses 1 and 2. He says, in the first year of Darius the Mede, you'll recall that, that uh, Daniel is, is in bondage, or I shouldn't say in bondage, but he is in Babylon at this time, and it's the Medo-Persian Empire who are in charge. And he says, in the first year of Darius the Mede, I arose to be an encouragement and protection for him. And now I will tell you the truth. Behold, underline a couple of things. Three more kings are going to arise in Persia. Then a fourth, underline that, will gain far more riches than all of them. And as soon as he becomes strong through his riches, he will arouse the whole empire against the realm of who? Okay, against the realm of Greece. At the time that this was written, that's like saying one day we're going to go to war with the Dominican Republic and, and they're going to beat us. You'd say, who, who is that? Greece was not really a real entity at this point. And so, but you underline that. Now, a couple of things. He says in Persia, he's speaking about a specific kingdom, the Medo-Persian kingdom. And then he says there's going to be a fourth king. That fourth king is going to be very wealthy and he's going to rise up and he's going to take the whole empire against the realm of Greece. That is, he's going to begin a war with Greece. Now, here's how it goes down. I put it there in your outline in the box. You have the first king after, after this Darius is Cyrus, and then there's Cambyses, and then there's Darius Histapes, if I'm saying that right. Now, this Darius in 490 BC will take his army and he will attack Greece. And as he goes into Greece, he's going to be defeated and it's going to hit Greece pretty hard also. And so ultimately, when his kingdom comes to the end, his son will be coming the king, and his son's name will be Xerxes. Now, Xerxes will be incredibly wealthy, and he will train an army of 2.5 million people. Now, that's a big army, even by today's standards. But way back in those days, that was massive. It was super. It was colossal. And so he will train this army, and he will train them and outfit them for four years. That's the kind of wealth that this guy has. He remembers how his dad attacked Greece, but it didn't work out the way that he wanted it to. And he's really bugged. He's bugged because they're the Medo-Persians, and they should be you know, the, world, the rulers of the world. And, and, and he's just bugged that they've lost that. And so now he will take his army of 2.5 million, and they will launch an attack against Greece. This is world history. It's not just Bible history. And so he will take, and I put a couple of things that historians have discovered, that he had 1,200 ships, and he will launch in 480 BC. And ultimately, he's going to be defeated, just like the Bible said. This will begin the end of what you and I call the Medo-Persian Empire. Now, the Greeks who have been attacked at this point, they thoroughly hate the Medo-Persian Empire, as you can imagine. And so we pick it up in verses 3 and 4 because they're going to have their own leader who's going to come on the scene and he's going to retaliate. Verses 3 and 4, it says, And a mighty, mighty king will arise, and he will underline, rule with great authority and do as he pleases. But as soon as he has arisen, his kingdom will be broken up and parceled out toward, underline, the four points of the compass, though not, underline this, to his own descendants, not to his own descendants, nor according to his authority which he wielded, nor according to his authority which he wielded. For his sovereignty will be uprooted and given to others besides them. So here's what happens. The Medo-Persian Empire, they attack Greece. Verses 3 and 4 tell us about Greece's response. And so you have introduced here in verses 3 and 4 the Greek leader who arises, and his name is Alexander the Great. And it's interesting that it says that he will rule with great authority, or some translations would say great power. Alexander, this is about 160 years later, Alexander is 19 years of age when he takes control of the army. And as he begins to conquer various places, kind of wipes out the the Medo-Persian empire and goes throughout the whole world, in his early 30s, about age 33, he weeps because there are no more places for him to go and to conquer. 
And so one night he takes his generals and they are kind of talking about things and they get drunk and he's going back to his tent. As he goes back to his tent, he's bugged about the fact that, that they've not been able to find any more places to conquer. He's drunk. It's raining. He passes out. He falls asleep soaking wet. He wakes up the next day, but he's kind of caught something. The doctors come and they say, this is what's going to happen. Alexander, you've caught some pneumonia. It's pretty bad. And so now Alexander is on his deathbed. He says, give the kingdom to the strong. The four corners are the four, cor- yeah, the four corners of the earth. I'm getting ahead of myself. But he will rule with great, king, um, great power. And then number two on your outline, did I put a number two where it says the kingdom will be divided into four parts? Or is that just my notes? Just my notes? Okay. He says there in verse, verse 4, he says it will be broken up and will be parsed up to the four points of the compass. He has four generals who parcel his kingdom, and it's in the four different directions of the compass, you might say. You have Ptolemy who goes south to Greece, and then you have the Antiochus dynasty that will go north to, uh, to Syria. And so it goes in four directions. And then it says that he will have a divided kingdom, but in verse 4 it says, not according to the authority which he wielded. Those generals will never have the authority that he has. So Alexander is born in 356 B.C., and this is prophesied about 216 years before it happened. Well, verse 5, it says this. You have now Alexander's divided empire, verses 5 and 6, and it says, then, this is after Alexander, the kingdom of the south, now underline that, will grow strong along with his princes who will gain ascendancy over him and obtain dominion. His dominion will be a great dominion indeed. Verse 6, after some years they will form an alliance by the daughter of the king of the south, underline that, will come to the king of the north to carry out a peaceful arrangement. But she will not retain her position of power, nor will he retain his power, that's the king in the south, but she will be given up along with those who brought her in and the one who sired her, as well as he who supported her in those times. Now, you see, friends, it makes perfect sense. Now, here's what's going on. The rest of the chapter will deal with the kingdom of the north and the kingdom of the south. In the Bible, when it says the kingdom of the north and the kingdom of the south, it's always from what perspective? Israel, from Israel. So just to make it simple, when it talks about the kingdom of the north, that refers to Syria. Write that down. When it refers to the kingdom of the south, it refers to Egypt. That makes sense so far? So you have the kingdom of the north and the kingdom of the south. Now, who's going to be in the middle? Jerusalem or Israel. Now, why is that so important? Because this chapter is going to tell us about the squabbles between the kingdom of the north and the kingdom of the south. But every time the kingdom of the north mixes it up with the kingdom of the south, they have to go through Jerusalem or they go through Israel. This decimates Israel on a continuous basis for a couple of hundred years. And that's what this chapter is going to be about. Well, it said, and I'm going to explain just a couple of things. You have the king of the south, it says, becomes strong. His name would be Ptolemy. He's the king of Egypt. And then it says in verse 5, it says, The king of the south, Egypt, will grow strong, and one of his princes will gain ascendancy over him. Now, here's what happened. There was a king, there was a general called Seleucus. And when the kingdom is parceled up by Alexander, everybody takes a a, a different portion, but there's one kind of minor general. And he says, I don't really need a whole portion. I just want a town. And so the town that he wants is the town of Babylon, kind of a city-state kind of thing. But he has an alliance with the king of Egypt, but he's still kind of a lesser, a lesser general. And, and yet he has a problem because although he has Babylon, the guy in the north, Antiochus, and by the way, they just keep naming their kids the same name. So when we say Antiochus, it could be Antiochus. One, two, three, four, five. It's like George Foreman. All of his kids, even his daughters, are all named George. So not very creative in those days. 
So, so this Seleucus has a problem because the guy in Syria, Antiochus, keeps coming to attack him. So what he does is he takes his troops and he goes to Egypt, but there's a problem. As they spend time together under Ptolemy, he becomes much stronger. Well, that creates a problem. Well, so the story goes on. Antiochus uh, takes over Babylon from the north. Fifty-four years later, the south and the north are at war. And so the king of the south, in verses seven it, or verse 6, it says, After some years they will form an alliance, and the daughter of the king of the south, Egypt, will come to the king of the north to carry out a peaceful arrangement. Now, here's what's going on. The king of the north, Antiochus of Syria, and Ptolemy, they've been going at it. You know, whether it's the, the first one, the second one, the grandsons, back and forth, they're going at it. They finally say, you know, this isn't, it should not be this way. So here's what we're going to do. Ptolemy, the king of the south in Egypt, sends word up to Antiochus in Syria in the north. And he says, why don't we be friends? Now, here's the thing. You know Egypt is much stronger. We're doing great down here. You guys are kind of faltering. But here, I want to have a peaceful arrangement. I want to give you, Antiochus, there in the north, I want to give you my daughter, Bernice. And so if this takes place, then, then you guys will have kids. And, and so then I'll have grandchildren. And the reality is I could never launch a war knowing that my grandchild is there. And so we will have peace. Well, Antiochus, he listens to this proposition and he says, but, but I don't want to marry Bernice because I'm married to Laodice. Laodice is how you, you say her name. Well, the king of the south says, well, here's the thing. You either take my daughter as your wife or we're going to war. So it's either we're going to be friends and I'm going to be grandpa or you're going to be a dead man. Well, so the king in the north, Antiochus, he thinks about this and he says, well, to save the kingdom, I'm going to do that. So... He takes Bernice as his wife and puts away Laodice, divorces her, and kind of puts her in the background. But he's not really happy with Bernice, although they have a child together. And two years later, Grandpa, there in Egypt, he dies. Well, Antiochus, who's here with his daughter, says, well, why am I married to Bernice now? Because Grandpa is dead, and so he divorces Bernice and sends her packing back to Egypt. Goes to Laodice, who's been in kind of seclusion for two years, and says, Honey, I miss you. I need your baby. Something like that. Gets a little muddled in the Hebrew. And so that day, that day, now that Grandpa is dead... That day, he says, I don't want to wait to be married. And so he remarries Laodice, which makes her the queen of Syria, the northern kingdom. But women are funny. And so she marries him as the king, but that night as the queen, she kills him. Truly. And so, here's the dilemma. The king has married her that day. She's the queen. Now, if it were you and I, we'd be taken out and we'd be killed, but you really can't kill the queen. That night, she places her son as the king now of Syria and sends the army after Bernice and the baby on their way back to Egypt and has them killed. So Laodice is not a very happy woman, to say the least. Well, verses 5 and 6, I've put on your outline in a way that might give a little bit more explanation. So verse 5 there in your outline, it says, The king of the south, Ptolemy, will become strong, but one of his commanders, Seleucius, he's a lesser general, will become even stronger, and he will rule his own kingdom, that's Babylon, with great power. After some years, 54 years to be exact, they will become allies. Now, the daughter of the king of the south, that's Bernice in 252 B.C., will go to the king of the north, that's Antiochus, to make an alliance. But she will not retain her power. And he, 
Antiochus and his power will not last. He's poisoned. He's dead. In those days, she, Bernice, will be handed over, literally murdered. Together with her royal escort, the people who are taking her back to Egypt, and her father, who has already died, and the one who supported her. So you have this entourage is, is killed, and certainly there's enough details there to give you the idea. But it's interesting how the Bible lays out that whole thing in incredible detail. Well, it goes on. And so this creates a problem between the north and the south, the Greeks and the Syrians, or Antiochus's boys, you might say. And so in verse 7, it says, Now one of the descendants of her line will arise in his place, and he will come after their army and enter the fortress of the king of the north, and he will deal with them and display great strength. So here's the deal. Bernice has been killed on the way back to Egypt. Her dad has died some two years earlier, thus making her brother now the king. Now, the brother finds out that Antiochus's crowd has just killed Bernice, his sister. And so he's ticked. So he takes his army and he launches, a, a, you know, he launches against the, the Syrian army, Antiochus's crowd. Of course, to do that, they have to once again go through Israel. Well, I put that one there. You know, he's going to make things right. And I put that verse also on your outline. It says, one from her, this is referring to Bernice, who has been killed by Laodice, who poisoned her husband. One from her family, in fact, it's her brother, Ptolemy III, will arise to take her place, or literally to take up her cause to get revenge. He will attack the forces of the king of the north and enter his fortress, the capital. He will fight against them and be victorious, that is, her brother, Bernice's brother, when he conquers and enters the fortress, he's going to have Laodice killed. General Hospital has nothing <laughs> on the Bible. The plot thickens. Verse 8, as Brother Ptolemy goes up, it says, And also their gods with their metal images and their precious vessels of silver and gold he will take into captivity to Egypt. And he, on his part, will refrain from attacking the king of the north for some years. And so the idea is that he goes up and he really wants to insult the Syrians in the north. And so the best way to do that is to show that your God is more powerful than their God or gods. And so he goes in and he steals all their gods, which tells you the quality of their gods, because if your God can be stolen, it's not much of a God. And so he steals that to totally humiliate the northern army, and he takes them back to Egypt. Well, it goes on. The brothers in the north are bugged, Antiochus's boys are bugged that Laodice has been now killed by the Egyptians. And so in verse 9, it says, Then the latter will enter the realm of the king of the south, but will return to his own land. And so you have Antiochus's boys now launching a war against Egypt in the south. Once again, where do they have to go through? And that's what this is all about, that the nation of Israel is being trampled. Verses 10 and 11, it says, And his sons will mobilize and assemble a multitude of great forces. And one of them will keep on coming and overflow and pass through, that he may again wage war up to his very, or to his very fortress." And the king of the south will be enraged and go forth and fight with the king of the north. Then the latter will raise a great multitude, but that multitude will be given into the hand of the former. Well, let me explain that. Antiochus, you know, you got Antiochus, you've got a couple of, you know, probably grand grandchildren here at this point, Antiochus. He says to Egypt, he says, I'm coming down to invade Egypt. I'm upset about this. We're going to wipe out Egypt one time. 
Now, the Egyptian king at this time, his name is Ptolemy Philopater. It's not in your outline, but he is the, the king of Egypt at this time. And he is the kind of king who despises battles. And he's more into wine and women and song. You know, and his motto is, can't we all just get along? Kind of that mentality. And so he doesn't want a war, but the problem is that Antiochus and his army are now marching into Egypt at this point. And so he is enraged, and although he doesn't want to fight, he then goes and he attacks Antiochus, and they mix it up. But here's the thing. Although he defeats Antiochus in the north, he doesn't wipe them out. As soon as Antiochus turns to retreat and run back, well, Ptolemy says, well, it's kind of over. Let's go back to just can't we all get along? So he allows the enemy to escape. Well, so Ptolemy of Egypt will win the war, but the war is not going to be over because Antiochus is going to go back and regroup and prepare. And then in verses 12 and 13, it says, When the multitude is carried away, his heart will be lifted up, and he will cause tens of thousands to fall, yet he will not prevail. For the king of the north will again raise a greater multitude than the former. And after an interval of some years, he will press on with a great army and much equipment. So Ptolemy is pretty satisfied about his victory. Antiochus goes up and begins to prepare more, but after some years is going to come back with a much larger army, and ultimately Ptolemy is going to be defeated. Now we are going to meet Antiochus the Great up in the northern part because he's the one who's showing up with his army. Next few verses will be the exploits of Antiochus the Great. And we pick it up in verse 14. It says, Now in those times, many will raise up against the king of the south. And and actually, that's going to be, uh, part of that is going to be Israel's going to be revolting against him. And violent ones among your people, your people, Daniel, will also lift themselves up in order to fulfill the vision, but they will fall down. They're going to die. Verse 15. Then the king of the north, Antiochus in Syria, will come, cast a siege mound, and capture a well-fortified city, and the forces of the south, that's Egypt, will not be able to stand their ground, not even their choicest troops, for there will be no strength to make a stand. Verse 16, but he who comes against him will do as he pleases, and no one will be able to withstand him. And he will also stay for a time in the beautiful land. When the Bible says the beautiful land, who's it talking about? Israel. With destruction in his hand. So once again, Israel's going to be decimated in this. So Israel's going to be trampled at this time. And so uh, he goes back and forth and he beats the king in, in, in Egypt. And he, although he beats him in battle, he doesn't control Egypt. And this kind of bothers him. And so Antiochus says, I've beaten Egypt in battle, but I don't control Egypt in the sense that I own it. He says, and I want to own it. So he devises a plan. And so the plan to own Egypt, we find in verse 17. He will set his face to come with the power of his whole kingdom, bringing with him a proposal of peace which he will put into effect. He will also give him the, underline this, daughter of women to ruin it. But she will not take a stand for him or be on his side. Now, here's here's what happens. You have Antiochus in the north. He's beaten the Egyptian army, but he doesn't control Egypt. So he shows up and he says, you know, why don't we think about having peace? You know, we did the marriage thing a while back, but it really didn't work. But, you know, when Alexander divided the kingdom, he really wanted us to all get along because we were really all supposed to be one kingdom. But the only way we're really going to do this is, is if we somehow merge together. And so I'm bringing to you my daughter. 
And I would like my daughter to be married to your son. Now, this is a fascinating thing because the daughter's name is Cleopatra. But she's not the Cleopatra that you're thinking about. But that is her name, Cleopatra. Now, she is 23 years of age. And she is to be married to the king's son there in Egypt. But he is only seven years of age. So um, Antiochus in the north says, if I can get these two married, then she can manipulate him into allowing me to come in and take over this kingdom. Well, ten years pass, and we find that now Cleopatra, she's now 33, but the king is now 17. And he's been doing some bodybuilding. He's totally buff. He's got the long flowing hair. And she is looking at him and she says, I like him. I'm in love with him. And so she chooses to be a devoted wife to him, not being the spy that her father had hoped for. This bothers her father. And it goes on in verse 18 and it says, he Well, let me read verse 17 again. It says, He will set his face to come with the power of his whole kingdom, bringing with him a proposal of peace, which he will put into effect. He will also give him the daughter of women to ruin it. But she will not take a stand for him or be on on his side. She chooses her husband, not her dad. Verse 18, he responds to this and it says, Then he will turn his face to the coastlands and capture many. But a commander will put a stop to his scorn against him. Moreover, he will repay him for his scorn. So he will turn his face toward the fortresses of his own land, but he will stumble and fall and be found no more. And so what takes place is that he leaves because he can't now, his daughter's not on his side, and he begins to just fight whoever, and ultimately he dies in battle. It's sad, though, that the marriage, though, of this Cleopatra and this, this um, son does not ultimately work out. There's an age difference, and apparently she was listening to the Beatles, and he didn't know who that was, and it just became an issue. And so, but ultimately, their, their marriage doesn't work. Um, there on your outline, I've placed verse 18 and 19. Let me just read it there. It says, he will determine to come with the might of his entire kingdom. Whole army shows up. He will make an alliance with the king of the south, Egypt, and he will give him a daughter in marriage, that's Cleopatra, to, in order to overthrow the kingdom. But his plans will not succeed or help him. After this, he, Antiochus the Great, will turn back towards the fortresses of his own country, but will stumble and fall to be seen no more. He dies. Well, Antiochus, his military exploits take a financial toll on the country because he's been at war for many years. And this is draining the economy of the northern kingdom. And so they have a real problem up in the north. And so in verse 20, the northern kingdom responds and it says, Then in his place, one will arise who will ascend, who will send an oppressor through the jewel of his kingdom. Yet within a few days he will be shattered. He will, he, he will be shattered through neither in anger nor in battle. He dies, but not in anger or in battle. The replacement for Antiochus. Now here's what's going on: the king of Syria, Antiochus, has died. The country is in financial turmoil because they are broke because of this Antiochus war campaign. So they bring in a new king, and his name is Seleucius IV Philopater from 187 to 175 B.C. He is known for his oppression of the people and his taxation. And in those days, taxation was not a very popular thing in those days. As a matter of fact, another translation, the New International Version, says it like this. His successor will send out a tax collector to maintain the royal splendor. In a few years, however, he will be destroyed, yet not in anger or in battle. Now, here's what happens. As the story goes, 
he sends out a thousand tax collectors who go through the land to collect taxes. And uh, the people aren't receiving these tax collectors with a great deal of open arms and warmth, you might say. Kind of like when the IRS sends you a letter, it never just warms the, the bottom of your heart, does it? Sends fear. And so he's a very unpopular guy. So one day, some of his so-called friends who are just tired of this taxation, they invite him to a meal where they feed him some poison mushrooms and he dies and he goes on into eternity. Well, he will then replaced by, be replaced by a guy called Antiochus Epiphanes, who, uh, well, well, we'll look at him now. And so he will reign from 175 to 164 B.C., verses 21 through 24, it says, and in his place a despicable person will arise on whom the honor of kingship, underline this, has not been conferred. But he will come in a time of tranquility and will seize the kingdom by intrigue, underline that, and the overflowing forces will be flooded away before him and shattered, and also the prince of the covenant, underline that prince of the covenant. And after an alliance alliance is made with him, he will practice deception, and he will go up and gain power with a small force of people. In a time of tranquility, he will enter the richest parts of the realm, and he will accomplish what his fathers never did, nor his ancestors. He will distribute plunder, booty, and possessions among them, and he will devise his schemes against strongholds, but only for a time. Now, as we get into this guy, remember from our previous studies, this is the same guy who is a picture of the coming Antichrist at end times. And a couple of things. First of all, it says that he uh, assumes the kingdom by intrigue. He has a brother who's really in, in line for the, the kingdom, and he makes it so that his brother can't become the kingdom or the king. He kills anybody else who stands in his way. And we saw in verse 21, it says he's a despicable person. A despicable person will arise on whom the, um, the honor of the kingship has not been conferred. That is, he's not in line to be the king, but he becomes the king. And so it says also in verse 21, it says he will come in a time of tranquility and he will seize the kingdom by intrigue, that is flattery. So he's going to tell people exactly what they want to say. One day to this group, he's going to say it was right to invade Iraq, but to the next group of people, he's going to be saying, we should have never invaded Iraq. And, and uh, just toss that out for your consideration. <laughs> and he is a wicked man. And so, verses 22 through 24, it says, The overflowing forces will be flooded away before him and shattered, and also the prince of the covenant. The prince of the covenant is an Old Testament way of saying the priest who's the keeper of the covenant in Israel. This is the priest in the temple. And he's going to get caught up in this man's intrigue. He's going to buy into it. He's going to have a covenant with this guy. And so, the idea is verse 23, after an alliance is made with him, he will practice deception and he will go up and gain power with a small force of people. In a time of tranquility, he will enter the richest parts of the realm. He will accomplish what his fathers never did. And the idea is that he will invade when the people feel safe using deception. And that's a picture of the one that we're going to find at the end of time. Well, it goes on. He has some battles. We pick it up in verses 25, and it says, verses 25 and 26, it says, He will stir up his strength and courage against the king of the south, back down to Egypt, with a large army. So the king of the south will mobilize an extremely large and mighty army for war, but he will not stand, for schemes will be devised against him. And those who eat his choice food will destroy him, and his army will overflow, but many will fall down slain. And so here's the idea. Antiochus Epiphanes comes down, and he comes down with a large army against Egypt. And what he has done, you know, he talks about how he schemes and things of that nature, but in verse 26 it says, those who eat his choice food will destroy him. Antiochus and his cronies have infiltrated the kingdom of Egypt. And at the time that this is going on, the people who would be serving the king, his food, poison the king, and he dies. 
So there will need to be a new king. Well, so they respond to this in verses 27 and 28. You know, Egypt says, what can we do? We need to do something. And so they decide to come together to the peace table. Verse 27, it says, as for both kings, their hearts will be intent on evil as they come to this peace table, and they will speak lies to each other. Underline that. They will speak lies to each other at the same table, but it will not succeed for the end is still to come at the appointed time. Then he will return to his land with much plunder, but his heart will be set against the holy covenant, that's in Jerusalem, and he will take action and then ter- return to his own land. So as he goes through Egypt on the way out, he uh, kind of pillages uh, Israel, you might say. But the idea is the kingdom of the north and the kingdom of the south, they sit down. Kingdom of the North is coming in to wipe out the kingdom of the South, Egypt. They sit down at the peace table and they lie to one another as they do this peace treaty. Uh, very much like today. If you've ever seen some of the peace treaties, they don't last 12 hours. And, and yet, you know, they sit down and you wonder, well, what did you mean when you sat down? Well, if you've been watching the news, you know. And so they lie to one another, but it's interesting in verse 28, it says, so then he will return to his land with much plunder. And the idea is, I'll go back to Syria but I want the wealth. And so he goes back with much plunder. Well, the plot thickens because verse um, they have a number of treaties that are never kept. He goes back, verse 29, it says, at the appointed time he will return and come into the south, but this last time it will not turn out the way it did before. Now, here's the thing. He decides to come back through Egypt, again, going through Jerusalem, and Egypt knows that he's coming. And, and so Egypt says, what are we going to do? Well, there's a little bitty empire that's growing in strength and popularity, and it's called the Roman Empire. And as the Roman Empire is growing, the empire of Greece goes to the Roman Empire and says, we need help. We need to have an alliance. And so Rome dispatches its navy and its military so that when Antiochus Epiphanes comes down to invade Egypt, he is met by the entire Roman navy and military. There is a Roman consul, and his name is Gaius Populus Leinus, if I'm pronouncing that right, I'm a little rusty on my Latin uh, because I've I've never taken Latin. So, (laughs) as as this Antiochus Epiphanes comes out ready for battle, he sees the Roman army, and so the Roman army advances and they send out their council with a few of their soldiers, and they say, "We want to see Antiochus. Come on out, we'll talk." Antiochus goes out. And as he goes out to meet the Roman consul with his army, he's made a very foolish choice because he's a lot closer to the Roman army than his army is to him. And so the Roman consul says to Antiochus Epiphanes, he says, you've come out to go against Egypt. We have a treaty and an alliance with Egypt. If you go to war with Egypt, you're going to go to war with us. Are your intentions to go to war with Egypt? Antiochus thinks about it for a second and says, well, give me a minute and I'm going to go back and talk to my generals and let's see what they say, which apparently was just common protocol that you would do. The general, however, takes a stick and walks around Antiochus Epiphanes and draws a line in the sand. It says, Antiochus, before you leave this circle, we're going to have your answer. And if you step outside of that circle, then we know it's war, and the first thing we're going to do is we're going to kill you. So Antiochus hems and haws a little bit, wants to call his attorney, and he says, okay, in that case, I will go back and I will take my army, and I will retreat, and I will go back up into Syria. Now, he is totally infuriated 
at this point because he's been publicly humiliated. He's had to back down for the first time, and he's there at Egypt with all of this fury. What does he have to go through to get back to Syria? He has to go back through Israel. And as he goes through Israel, verse 30, it says, it, well, it says for, let me read 29. At the appointed time, he will return and come to the south. And in this last time, it will not turn out the way it did before. For, sh- for ships from Kittim, if you have the Septuagint, it says ships from Rome will come against him. Therefore, he will be disheartened and he will return and become enraged at the holy covenant and take action. So he will come back and show regard for those who forsake the holy covenant. And forces from him will arise, desecrate the sanctuary fortress, and do away with the regular sacrifice. They will set up an abomination of desolation. And by smooth words, he will turn to godlessness, those who act wickedly toward the covenant. But, underline this, the people who know their God will display strength and take action. And those who have insight among the people will give understanding to the many. They will be saying, hey, this has all been prophesied in the Bible. We saw this coming. Yet they will fall fall by the sword and by flame. It's an interesting thing in the Apocrypha. You can read how uh, there is this one family who would not... um, worship the way that he said, and worship him as God. He decides that he's going to be God. You have to worship him. And there was a mother who had these sons. And so to teach her a lesson, this Antiochus, he took each son and fried him alive in in an iron skillet. And all she had to do is say, I will bow down and worship you. I, I renounce the God that I have. And it went through all of the sons and then ultimately her. So so that's the kind of thing that he did. It says he will fall by sword and by flame, by captivity and by plunder for many days. Verse 34. Now, when they fall, they will be granted a little help, and many will join them in hypocrisy. And some of those who have insight will fall in order to refine, purge, and make them pure until the end time, because it is still to come at an appointed time. And so... The story goes that this Judas Maccab- um, the, the story goes that this Antiochus Epiphanes, as he comes back through, he's enraged and he makes a law and he says, "You can only worship me." He goes into the temple and he sets up a statue of himself and, and, and he says, "This is what you're going to worship." They desecrate the altar, and there comes a time as they are about to sacrifice a pig on the altar. There is a man called Judas Maccabeus, and He says to himself, enough is enough. I am with God. And that's what the verse 32, it says, but the people who know their God will display strength and take action. And so as the priest of Antiochus is about to butcher and sacrifice a pig on the altar, Judas Maccabeus says, that's it. And he pulls his sword and he begins hacking away at everything that's in front of him which inspires the Jewish leadership and the Jewish people, and they literally push off the revolt of, the, uh, of this um, Antiochus Epiphanes. In the end, over 100,000 Jewish people would be killed. It's called the Maccabean Revolt. When they cleanse the temple, they will have a celebration from this whole event, which you and I would know as Hanukkah. That's where that comes from, is the purification of the temple when this whole thing takes place. This is recorded in what is called the Apocrypha, the Maccabean Revolt. The Apocrypha is the intertestamental writings. It's not the Old Testament. It's not the New Testament. It's the writings that took place in between, the 400 or so years in between. It's not Scripture, but it is great history. And it recounts this, and it says, I put it on your outline, it says from the Apocrypha, it says, Then the king, who's Antiochus Epiphanes, issued a proclamation to the whole kingdom that all were to become a single people, each renouncing his particular customs. All the pagans conformed to the king's decree, and many Israelites chose to accept his religion, sacrificing to idols and profaning the Sabbath. The king also sent instructions by messenger to Jerusalem, to the towns of Judah, directing them to adopt customs foreign to the country. 
banning holocaust, that means uh, stopping the sacrifices, uh, sacrifices and libations from the sanctuary, profaning Sabbaths and feasts, defiling the sanctuary and sacred ministers, building altars, precincts and shrines for idols, sacrificing pigs and unclean beasts, leaving their sons uncircumcised and prostituting themselves to all kinds of impurity and abomination so that they would forget the law and revoke all observance of it. Many of the people, that is, every apostate from the, from, um, every apostate from the law, rallied to them and so committed evil in the country, forcing Israel into hiding in all their places of refuge. On the 15th day of Chislov in the year 145, the king Antiochus Epiphanes erected the abomination of desolation above the altar. And it's interesting that this was all laid out. And so this Antiochus Epiphanes, um, Judas Maccabeus, revolts against this, revolts against this, and pushes off the... the um, the Antiochus occupation, you might say. Now, why is all this so important? These are some incredible details, and all I did was give you just a survey of what has taken place and obviously some information overload. Now, why did God put this in the Bible? Because you and I, as we look at this, we can say it happened according to secular history exactly the way that God said it would happen, 135 statements. The rest of the chapter and chapter 12 will deal with what you and I would term the Antichrist and what he's going to do. If this happened exactly, precisely the way that God said it would happen, then absolutely what he says is going to happen will absolutely take place. Does that make sense? And we will pick it up next week, but it will not be as information overload heavy as it, as it was this week. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word, and Lord, just the amazingness of the detail. Lord, we we just took a cursory study, and we know that people study this for years and are just amazed at the incredible detail that you have put in your word so that we could know it's really true. It's not, not just a novel. And Father, we pray that you would burn your word into our hearts, Lord, that we would live in the light of the truth of this book. Thank you for this congregation who loves you and and meets here so faithfully each week. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.